Last time we had class, I made two mistakes, and I need to fix those. One, one mistake was I said that Nebuchadnezzar had come to lay siege to Jerusalem, but he left suddenly, and he set up King Zedekiah because the Egyptian army had marched forth in support of Judah. All that stuff is right, but except that I told you it was Pharaoh Hophra, and it, and it wasn't Pharaoh Hophra. That whole thing with Egypt coming to their aid doesn't happen until this week. So forget that part. I'll get to it. Then also, I did not give you the right sequence of events for when Daniel was taken into captivity. So just to get this all straight so that you know what's going on, I want to I just go through the kings that have been coming and going rather quickly here in these last couple of weeks. The first one, and I think it's on your handout, is good King Josiah, right? He died. He was the last good king. His son, Jehoahaz, became king. He was 23 years old, and he reigned three months before Pharaoh Necho of Egypt took him prisoner. And when, when, the, when that happened, the Lord told Jeremiah that um, Jehoahaz would never come back from captivity, that he would die in captivity. That's in Jeremiah 22.11. Now, Jehoahaz had a son, and his name was Jehoiakim, with an M, and he became king of Judah. Then there was the Battle of Karshemish, which we talked about. Huge shift in world power. And after that Battle of Karshemish, Nebuchadnezzar started marching southward towards Egypt. And he's like taking every kingdom under control as he goes by, including Judah. And he was just about to take, you know, he was, he was just going to continue straight south to Egypt when his dad died. And he had to stop his camp military campaign and go back home because if he doesn't go back home, somebody else is going to become king, right? You know, you want to, if you're back in those days, it wasn't exactly a peaceful transition of power. So he definitely needed to be there to take over Babylon as the new king. And when he went to Babylon that time, that's when Daniel got taken to Babylon. Okay. He took 3,023 Jews with him to to Babylon, and they would have been the, the nobility, the, the cream of the crop were the ones he took, and Daniel was in that bit. Well, King Jehoiakim paid tribute to Babylon for three years, and after three years, the Bible says he rebelled. That's all it says. Is this the M or the M? The M. This is the M, M guy, M word, okay? And so whenever there's like this gap in it, doesn't exactly, you know, somebody does something significant and the Bible doesn't really say why they did it. That's when you want to go and you look, want to look at what we would call extra biblical sources. It's other historians. And one of, have y'all ever heard of Josephus? You have a few people? Well, Josephus was, this is, this is, he wrote two books. This book is, his original was in Greek. This is an English translation of, of his two books. And this is really the more important excerpts from his two books. And so I, I pulled out my copy of Josephus' writing, and I went back to that time period. Because Josephus was a Jew who started his history. He, he lived, um, he was born about the time Jesus was crucified. And so he lived through the fall of Jerusalem. And so he... He was a historian, and so he wrote two books which started at creation and came all the way up to what was his current day, and, and that's what's in here. So I went back, and I looked to see, well, what did Josephus say about 
what happened to um, Jehoiakim. And here's what he said. He said that after the battle of Karshemish, Jehoiakim purchased peace for three years. So apparently he paid up front for three years, okay? Or else that could mean he paid every year for three years. But one way or another, he paid for Nebuchadnezzar not to attack him. But then he heard, this is a quote from Josephus, except translated to English. But then, <laughs> then he heard that Nebuchadnezzar was about to fight the Egyptians, so he did not pay his tribute, hoping the Egyptians would be victorious. The prophet Jeremiah repeatedly warned him against putting any trust in the Egyptians, but it was in vain. Jeremiah foretold that Jerusalem would be overthrown by the king of Babylon, who would take Jehoiakim captive. Jeremiah then wrote down all his prophecies in a book and read them to the people in the temple. And the leaders took the book and brought it to the king, and he was so angry that he tore it up and threw it in the fire, which we had read about, right? Soon, Nebuchadnezzar appeared at Jerusalem with his army, and Jehoiakim received him into the city, you know, as a, his lord and liege, because technically Jehoiakim reported to Nebuchadnezzar, even though he had stopped paying him. Uh, and Jehoiakim received him, assuming he would suffer no harm, since he had not battled or excluded him. Well, that was not exactly how it went down once Nebuchadnezzar got there. Jeremiah chapter 22 verse 19 tells us, here's a, it's uh, actually verses 18 and 19 in chapter 22. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother, alas, my sister. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my master, alas, his splendor. He will have the burial of a donkey dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. So let's see. This was Jeremiah's prophecy, you know, what the Lord told him would happen. So let's see what happened. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 36, 6, you don't need to flip back there. It's just one verse that it says what happened to Jehoiakim. It tells us that Nebuchadnezzar bound Jehoiakim in chains to take him to Babylon. To take him to Babylon. Doesn't ever say he took him to Babylon. So I want to know what happened, which was, did he make it to Babylon? I assumed not because Jeremiah said he was going to be thrown outside the walls of Jerusalem and buried like a donkey, right? So once again, I looked up what Josephus said. And Josephus said, after entering the city, however, the Babylonian king did not keep his pledge. Instead, he killed the Judean leaders, including King Jehoiakim, and made his son, Jehoiakim, king in his place. So now we know, I mean, I have no reason not to believe Josephus. He's obviously working in part from biblical record, in part from oral tradition, and presumably he had other historical records available to him that are no longer extant today, you know, that we don't have anymore. So now... Jehoiakim is king. This is the one with the N. He was 18 years old, and he reigned for three months. The Bible doesn't tell us why, but guess who does? Josephus. And Josephus says, Later, Nebuchadnezzar feared that Jehoiakim would try to avenge his father's death, so he replaced him with his uncle Zedekiah. 
having first made Zedekiah promise he would always be faithful to Nebuchadnezzar. Meanwhile, Nebuchadnezzar had deported to Babylon thousands of Judean leaders. These included the prophet Ezekiel, who was then a boy, the ex-king Jehoiakim and his family, and thousands of young people and craftsmen. So now remember this picture in your mind that we've got Jeremiah in Jerusalem, but Ezekiel, another prophet of God, is now in Babylon. You've got a remnant of poor Jews, the poorer, less educated Jews, are left in Jerusalem, okay, under Zedekiah. And you've got the more um, educated Jews in Babylon. So you've got two groups. And the false prophets have been taken off, well, at least some of them, have been taken off into captivity as well, because he would have taken priests, prophets, princes, noblemen, okay? So you've got groups of prophets left in Jerusalem and groups of prophets in Babylon. Well, according to Babylonian records, this exile, that when, when Nebuchadnezzar came and took these people off, occurred on March 16, 597 B.C. We know the day it happened. And this fulfilled another prophecy of Jeremiah's. It was Jeremiah 22, 24, just a few verses after the one we just looked at, where the Lord says, As surely as I live, even if you, Jehoiakim, with an N, were a a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will hand you over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and you will never again return to Jerusalem. In all, 10,000 people were carried off leaving only the poorest of the land. And among those people were Jeremiah and his faithful friend and secretary, Baruch. Well, certainly none of these people that were carried off couldn't say they weren't warned, right? The false prophets were warned. The leaders were warned. The kings were warned. The priests were warned. And they were told that they were going to be taken into captivity because of their lies for the leaders for the false prophets it was because of their lies for the leaders it was because they had been bad shepherds of the people and had led the people astray and for the people it was because they had not trusted God because that was an individual choice you have a responsibility to follow your leaders you know you have a res- we live and die by the success of our military and of our leaders Because we are part of this nation, we will suffer regardless of our choices. We will suffer if our nation suffers, and we will rejoice and be blessed if our nation is blessed. But regardless of the choices our leaders make, we have individual choices that matter for our eternity, that matter for our people now. It matters now, and it matters in the future. And so nobody was without guilt as far as the Lord was concerned. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had, as I told you, left Zedekiah behind as king. And that's where we're going to pick up our story. So I've now fixed all my errors. So erase anything that I said differently before. Um, and, and, we're, and we're to King Zedekiah. He will be the last king of Judah. Josephus had a few words to say about Zedekiah that kind of put a little color to what's in the Bible. Zedekiah, Josephus says, allowed his entourage and subjects to act as outrageously as they pleased. Jeremiah warned him to stop his transgressions, 
while Ezekiel, writing from Babylon, also predicted the disasters that would overwhelm the people. But Zedekiah did not believe these prophets, because while Jeremiah and Ezekiel agreed on most points, there was a discrepancy when it came to their prophecies about King Zedekiah. Jeremiah claimed that Zedekiah would be carried captive to Babylon. And there's lots of places in Jeremiah where that's said. One of them is in Jeremiah 38:23. One is in Jeremiah 34, 3. I just kind of flipped through. I'm sure there's more. But, but Jeremiah was very consistent in saying, the Lord said, King Zedekiah, you are going to be carried off into captivity to Babylon. But you know what Ezekiel said? Ezekiel's prophecy said, according to Josephus, that Zedekiah would not see Babylon. Now, we don't have a copy in the Bible of that prophecy of Ezekiel's. All we, the only reason we know it even happened was because Josephus wrote this down. But keep that in your mind as we go through this study. It was about this time the Lord showed Jeremiah a vision. It was a vision of two baskets of figs, which grew, you know, there in that land. The Lord asked me, we're at Jeremiah 24, verse 3. The Lord asked me, what do you see, Jeremiah? Figs, I answered. The good ones are very good, but the poor ones are so bad they cannot be eaten. And then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs. I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. My eyes will watch over them for their good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Now, keep in mind, we're, as Christians, accustomed to this kind of language coming from the Lord. But this was said before Christ's death. God was saying to these exiles from from Jerusalem, I'm going to punish you and let you be in captivity for 70 years. But while you're in captivity, I'm going to bless you even there. I'm going to allow you to prosper. I'm going to bless you. And I see you even now as good. What a merciful God we have. You have sat here and listened as we've talked about how many hundreds of years of idol worship, child sacrifice, willfulness, arrogance towards the Lord and the Lord says you're breaking my heart I love you and yeah you're going to be in captivity for 70 years but I love you and I'm going to bring you back verse 8 but like the poor figs which are so bad they cannot be eaten says the Lord so will I deal with Zedekiah king of Judah his officials, and the survivors from Jerusalem, whether they remain in this land or live in Egypt, I will make them abhorrent and an offense to all the kingdoms of the earth, a reproach and a byword, an object of ridicule and cursing wherever I banish them. 
I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them until they are destroyed from the land I gave to them and their fathers. And this was because they persisted in their disobedience and in in their arrogance and in leading the people that were left astray. So Jeremiah is like, woohoo! And he sat down and he immediately wrote a letter to all those Jews in Babylon telling them this, saying, guess what the Lord said? He said he's not mad at you anymore. (laughs) He said it's going to be okay. You're going to stay there 70 years. But while you're there, marry, have kids, increase, multiply, be blessed. And this, of course, was the opposite of what the false prophets were telling them in Babylon. The false prophets did not foresee any of this blessing of the Lord. They never had seen the blessing that the Lord was holding out for the Israelites. So what the false prophets were saying to the people in Babylon was just, you know, kind of keep your suitcases packed. The Lord is going to rescue us any minute and take us home. And Jeremiah is saying, well, no, that's not exactly what's going to happen. You need to just make plans to stay there and be blessed until the time comes 70 years from now when God comes and gets us. So in Jeremiah 29, verse 5 is where his letter to the the Jews in Babylon started. And I just kind of took you all the way up to verse 8. Verse 8, this is in the middle of his letter, says, Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. You know, are we... Are we that kind of Christian, you know? Do we encourage our pastors to tell us what we want to hear? Do, do, we, do we make it unsafe for them to tell us anything but what we want to hear? In the New Testament, it's called, that. it says, we, we, have, we hire teachers who tickle our ears, you know? And that's what they had done. And the Lord says, don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come And pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And and it then goes on to talk about how he's going to gather them back from captivity and from exile. But it has application to us today. Because the cross of Christ gave us that same forgiveness It gave us that same vision that the Lord just decided, okay, you're clean. You know, just like he just decided that these exiles are clean. But there was still a step they needed to take in order to enter into the blessing. All right. You will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart. 
That's, that's the part we have to do. Well, that whole middle part about not believing the false prophets that are in Babylon did not sit so well with the false prophets in Babylon. And so one of them, whose name was Shemaiah, wrote a letter right back. And he said, he sent it, but he didn't send it to Jeremiah. He sent it to the priest who had been left in charge of the temple, whose name, unfortunately, is Zephaniah, but not to be confused with King Zedekiah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why why they run in groups like this. But this is, this is the, the priest, we're going to call him Zeph, priest Zeph. So the priest had been left, and, and in this letter, Shemaiah, it's in uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 26. Shemaiah says, Now the Lord appointed you priest in the place of Jehoiada to be in charge of the house of the Lord, and you should be putting any madman who acts like a prophet into the stocks and neck irons. So why haven't you reprimanded Jeremiah of Anathoth, who poses as a prophet among you? Here's, look at this message he sent us in Babylon. It will be a long time. Therefore, build houses and settle down and plant gardens and eat what they produce. I mean, Shemaiah, you know, is thoroughly expecting Zeph the priest to just pop Jeremiah right back into those leg irons and neck irons that he had been in before. Well, you know what Zeph did? Zeph took that letter to Jeremiah and says, hey, look what Shemaiah wrote. <laughs> and so Jeremiah wrote an answer back. Verse 31, send this message to all the exiles. This is what the Lord says about Shemaiah. Because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, even though I did not send him and has led you to believe a lie, this is what the Lord says. I will surely punish Shemaiah and his descendants. He will have no one left among this people, nor will he see the good things I will do for my people, declares the Lord, because he has preached rebellion against me. You would think that after he'd been proven to be a false prophet by being carried off into captivity, that Shemaiah would have repented. But Shemaiah's sin was pride. And that is one of the most deeply rooted sins that we have. In fact, most of our other sins are rooted in pride. Another word for pride or a phrase that you can think of is putting yourself in God's place. Worshiping yourself in one way or another. And that was the sin that got Satan. That's what caused him to fall in the first place was pride. It's a terrible, terrible sin. And, and it's one I have struggled with big time my whole life. And, I, and if you, like me, have struggled with that, I recently read a book that I thought captured it perfectly and captured the walk out of pride perfectly. And the name of that book is In the Sanctuary of Outcasts. It's by Neil White. It's a true story. I, I've met this man. He's a lovely man. And um, he was... When he was in his early 30s, uh, incarcerated in a federal penitentiary for kiting checks to keep his business afloat, basically, is what happened. What was unique about his incarceration was that half of the facility he was in was a penitentiary. The other half was a leper colony. And that changed who he was. 
And that book is very readable, wonderful book. And if you struggle with pride, I would totally recommend reading that book and seeing um, how he walked through that. In 589 BC, so this is about eight years into King Zedekiah's reign, Pharaoh Hophra came to power in Egypt. And Zedekiah and Hophra, so Jerusalem and Egypt, formed an alliance. And they are forming an alliance because they think they have a chance to go head-to-head with Nebuchadnezzar and win their freedom. Okay? So at that point, Zedekiah stopped paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar responded immediately, marched out with his armies, and Ezekiel prophesied from Babylon what would take place. This is in Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 18. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, mark out two roads for the sword of the king of Babylon to take, both starting from the same country. Make a signpost where the road branches off to the city. And I'm going to show you where this signpost would have been. Of course, this is a vision. Ezekiel has no way to make this signpost because he's way, he's in captivity in Babylon way over here. But if you, if you come the way that Nebuchadnezzar would have marched, he's going to march right through the Fertile Crescent. He's going to come down here. He's going to pass. He's going to, he's going to come up here to the Sea of Galilee. Okay. And he's going to have to make a decision. Is he going to march to the east of the Jordan River, which is where the Ammonites live? Or is he going to march to the west, which is where Jerusalem and Judah are? And so the Lord says, there's going to be a signpost right there. And one's going to say, left to Ammon, right to Jerusalem. Mark out one road for the sword to come against Rabbah of the Ammonites and another against Judah and fortified Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon will stop at the fork in the road at the junction of the two roads to seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows. He will consult his idols. He will examine the liver. And into his right hand will come the lot for Jerusalem where he is to set up battering rams, to give the command to slaughter, to sound the battle cry, and to set battering rams against the gates, to build a ramp, and to erect siege works. Is there any doubt in your mind as to what's going to happen? Jeremiah went to King Zedekiah to warn him. Jeremiah 34, verse 2. I'm going to kind of skip through this bit. This is what the Lord says, King Zedekiah, I'm about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon, and he will burn it down. You will not escape from his grasp, but will surely be captured and handed over to him. You will see the king of Babylon with your own eyes, and he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. Of course, Zedekiah is saying, ah, Ezekiel says, I'm not going to see Babylon. I'm not worried about that. Jeremiah continues, yet hear the promise of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah, This is what the Lord says concerning you. You will not die by the sword. You will die peacefully. As people made a funeral fire in honor of your fathers, the former kings who preceded you, so they will make a fire in your honor and lament, Alas, O Master, I myself make this promise, declares the Lord. I have no idea why the Lord would do that. It looked to me like Zedekiah was about as bad as they come. But we're going to see that there were places where Zedekiah had mercy on Jeremiah. And I have to think that that's why. 
I don't know that. Doesn't say that. But I have to think. That's the only good thing I can find out about him. Then Jeremiah the prophet told all this to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem, while the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and the other cities of Judah that were still holding out. And there was only two of them. Their names were Lachish and Azekah. They were the only fortified cities left in Judah, it says in the Bible. So we have three fortified cities, Jerusalem, Lachish, and Azekah. I'm probably saying that wrong. And in my NIV study Bible, in the notes, it said that they actually found what's called ostraca, which is pieces of broken pottery that they would use to write on back then. And they dated this layer of pottery 588 BC, which is right when this was happening. And that was the last layer that was found. There weren't any occupied layers above that. There was just dirt on top of that. So this was the last occupation. And one of these Ostrakhan, Ostrakhan 4, written to the commander at Lachish shortly after the events described here, ends as follows. We are watching for the fire signals of Lachish, for we cannot see Asaka. Just kind of gives you chills in your heart to just imagine those men on those battlements looking for the signal and not seeing it, of their brothers. Pharaoh Hophra marches out to support Zedekiah. Because they were allies, right? So Egypt better come to his aid. And according to Jeremiah 37, verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar withdrew from Jerusalem to go fight the Egyptians. So all the Jews are standing on the, on the, on the walls of Jerusalem going, Yay, yay, we scared them off, we scared them off. <laughs> all right? And neither Zedekiah nor his attendants, nor the people, I'm reading from the Bible now, um, chapter 37, verse 2, nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah the prophet, King Zedekiah, however, sent a couple of guys to Jeremiah with this message, please pray to the Lord God for us. You know, he like totally hedging his bets. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, verse 7. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of me. Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land, to Egypt. And then the Babylonians will return and attack this city. They will capture it and burn it down. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves thinking, oh, the Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. Even if you were to defeat the entire Babylonian army that is attacking you and only wounded men were left in their tents, they would come out and burn this city down because the Lord has ordained it's going to happen. And he wanted them to know, in no uncertain terms, the Lord was doing this. Then something strange happened. The Jews got religion. I know for sure that they rededicated themselves to the Lord in some kind of covenant ceremony because Jeremiah 34, verse 18 and 19 tell us that King Zedekiah made all the leaders and the priests and the people do a solemn covenant. And I don't know if you remember we talked about when we talked about Abraham's covenant with the Lord, how they slice the animals in half and they walk through the halves of the animals in a figure eight and it's kind of a, a really solemn cross my heart and hope to die. It's like, if I don't do what's in this covenant, may it be done to me as it was done to these animals. Okay? 
So it really is a cross my heart and hope to die kind of thing. Well, I think, now I'm reading between the lines here, so this is just the Bible according to Gail, but but, um, I think what happened was the Israelites became really desperate. They're under siege from the most powerful commander in the world. They, they've been worshiping idols, but they're thinking, you know, we've got the Lord God in our back pocket. We probably ought to, you know, call him in on this thing. So I think, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to prove to you why I think this, but I think that they declared a year of Jubilee, which we've talked about in our lesson. And here's why. You'll recall that, that in the year of Jubilee, which was supposed to happen once every 50 years, the Israelites were not to reap or sow, according to Leviticus 25. Well, that's a slam dunk. They can't reap or sow, sow anyway because they're under siege, right? So they got one, one mark in their favor. It's a very convenient time to declare a year of Jubilee. You know, I might be being a little cynical, but I wouldn't put it past them at this point. So also during the year of Jubilee and also really every seven years, any Israelites who had taken indentured servants or made slaves of their fellow man were to set them free. Well, they had never done this. They didn't. They, are you kidding me? You know, set your slaves free. We know what we live in the South. We know what that meant economically. Okay. Well, they, the, the Israelites were the same way. And so they hadn't been doing it. But look what it says in Jeremiah 34, verse 8. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim freedom for the the slaves. Everyone was to free his Hebrew slaves, both male and female. No one was to hold a fellow Jew in bondage. So all the officials and the people who entered into this covenant agreed that they would free their male and female slaves and no longer hold them in bondage. They agreed, they set them free, and everybody lived happily ever after. No. Look at the next verse. But afterward, they changed their minds and took back the slaves they had freed and enslaved them again. This was not a good move. The Lord was not impressed. And he said, tell them this, Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I made a covenant with your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I I said, every seventh year, each of you must free any fellow Hebrew who has sold himself to you. After he has served you six years, you must let him go free. Your fathers, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. And recently you repented and did what was right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to his countrymen. You even made a covenant, you know, with the animals before me in the house that bears my name. They did it in the temple. But now you have turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you had set free to go wherever they wished. You have forced them to become slaves again. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom for your fellow man. So now I proclaim, quote, freedom for you, declares the Lord. Freedom to fall by the sword, plague, and famine. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. The men who violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between the pieces. And the leaders, you know, and then it goes on to just say, you know, it's 
I'm going to hand you over. Your dead bodies are going to be food. I'm going to hand over Zedekiah, king of Judah, the officials, the whole, you know, everybody's going to get handed over to the king of Babylon, even though right now he's withdrawn to go fight the Egyptians. I'm going to give the order, declared the Lord, and I will bring them back to this city. They will fight against it, take it, and burn it down. And I will lay waste the towns of Judah so no one can live there anymore. I think he's kind of angry at this point. Another piece of evidence that I think supports my theory that the Israelites declared a year of Jubilee is in Jeremiah 37, verse 11. I don't know if you remember, but back in Leviticus 25, during a year of Jubilee, any land that a tribe had sold was supposed to revert back to the original tribe, okay? And that way the land, the division between the tribes always stayed constant. Every 50 years it started back over again. Look what it says in Jeremiah 37, 11. You know that the Levites, and Jeremiah was a Levite, he was a priest, did not own like big segments of land. They just owned, you know, but they did own their homes and the yards around them. And, you know, they did own some property. So after the Babylonian army had withdrawn from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave the city to go to the territory of Benjamin to get his share of the property among the people there. You see why I think that they declared that year of Jubilee. I think he was going to go back to get his, his property back. Okay. But he never made it home. When he reached the Benjamin gate, the captain of the guard stopped him and said, you're de deserting to the Babylonians. You're a traitor. Lock him up. And Jeremiah said, no, 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 no. I'm like, I'm going home, you know, to get my property. And he says, no, you're not. You're deserting. And he arrested Jeremiah and put him prisoner into this guy, Jonathan. It's Jonathan the secretary. It was his house that they had made into a prison. And so it says in verse 16, Jeremiah was put into a vaulted cell in a dungeon where he remained a long time. And finally, King Zedekiah sent for him and had him brought to the palace. And you know what Zedekiah wanted? Hey, Jeremiah, what does the Lord say lately? Well, you know what, Jer what Jeremiah said? Yeah, I talked to the Lord lately. You know what he said? You'll be handed over to the king of Babylon. And, so, and uh, Jeremiah then went on to say, look, King Zedekiah, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't committed any crimes. Please, please do not send me back to Jonathan, the secretary's house, that prison, because if you do, I will die there. And King Zedekiah, I think this, this, this and, and one thing later is what saved Zedekiah's life. King Zedekiah gave orders for Jeremiah to be placed in the courtyard of the guard, given bread from the street of bakers each day until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Okay, so he's kind of under, under, courtyard arrest okay <laughs> he can stay in the courtyard but he's not confined to the prison anymore of course jeremiah kept right on prophesying in uh, 38 verse 2 this is what the lord says whoever stays in this and you can just picture him now picture jeremiah he's in the courtyard of the guard he's in the middle of the military compound okay uh, what was left of their military Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. And whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. He will escape with his life. He will live. This city will certainly be handed over to the army of the king of Babylon, who will capture it. Well, 
that did not sit well with the military. Okay? They said, hey, King Zedekiah, this guy is a traitor. He's urging the people to surrender. He's urging them to give up. People, you know, he's, he's killing our morale over here. So King Zedekiah says, okay, whatever. I, you know, I'm tired of fighting about it. You do with Jeremiah whatever you want to do with Jeremiah. So they said, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. They are going to get rid of this guy once and for all. And they took him and they threw him in an empty well. Now the well didn't have any water in it, but it had been a well. And it was really muddy. And it was so muddy, he sank down in the mud. Can you imagine the terror that Jeremiah felt? Okay. Well, there was an official in the royal palace named Ebed Melech. He was from Africa. And he heard that they had put Jeremiah in the well. And so he went to the, where the king was holding court. He, he would hold it out at a place called the Benjamin Gate. And Ebed Melech pleaded for mercy for Jeremiah. and says, look, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. And if you leave him down in that well, he will die. And so Zedekiah said, okay. Take 30 guys with you and go get him out. And, well, at this point, Jeremiah is old, definitely old by the standards of the day. He was, like, my age. So Ebed Melech went and found some rags and some old clothes, and he got ropes, and he threw the rope, you know, into the rope and the, and the rags down to um, Jeremiah. He said, Jeremiah, put those rags under your arms and put the ropes under, and we'll, and we'll haul you up. And so he saved, he literally saved Jeremiah's life. And the Lord saw what Ebed Melech did for Jeremiah. Chapter 39, verse 15, or 16. The Lord said, Go and tell Ebed Melech the Cushite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says I am about to fulfill my words against this city through disaster, not prosperity. And at that time they will be fulfilled before your eyes. But. I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me, declares the Lord. Well, certainly, it all happened exactly like the Lord said it was happen. Pharaoh Hophra turned tail and ran back to Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar turned right back around and came and laid siege to Jerusalem. So um, we have a couple of places in the Bible. Um, Jeremiah 52.4, 2 Kings 25.1, and I'm sure it's in Chronicles 2. In the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, that would be January 15th, 588 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They camped outside the city and built siege works all around it. And the city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. It was a three-year siege. And right in the middle of that siege, the Lord told Jeremiah to do something really crazy. And the story is in Jeremiah 32. Now picture, it's been a year and a half, and they are running out of food big time. The army of the enemies encamped all around Jerusalem. People can still come in and out, but they're not allowing them to bring food and water in. Okay. The Lord tells Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah, your, your cousin is about to show up and he's going to want you to buy some land. <laughs> he's going to want you to buy a bridge in Arizona. Uh, I just want you to know that's fixing to happen. Well, sure enough, 
his cousin shows up, says, Jeremiah, you know that if, if one of the kinsmen cannot afford to buy back the property, he needs to, that someone in the clan, and they just kind of work through a hierarchy, has to buy the property back. And so he's coming to Jeremiah and saying, oh, looky here, you got to buy my property from me. Of course, it's worthless. It is absolutely worthless. But Jeremiah, having been mourned by the Lord, knows the Lord wants him to do this. So he shells out the money. He goes in front of the elders. They weigh it all out. They draw up the contract. Back then, when they drew contracts up, they would write two copies of it. And then they would roll one of the copies up and put official seals on it, and everybody would stamp it. They would leave one of them open so everybody could see what the terms of the contract were going forward. And only if it went to court would they ever break the seals of the one. And that's the significance of Jesus breaking the seals in Revelation. He's the heir, and he's able to break those seals of the contract, you know. But that's a, another story for another day. But um, the Lord, after Jeremiah shells out all this money for a piece of worthless land, he goes, he goes back to the Lord, and, and he says, Lord, why, why did I have to do that again? So, you know, I know that you can do anything, and I, and I just, and you're wonderful, and you're great, and I just don't get it. Why? How How can you say, the Lord said, well, it's because, and he, Jeremiah had had to announce this to everybody, that he was doing this because the Lord said that, you know, we this land is going to have value. And one day, people are going to buy and sell it again. And Jeremiah's going to the Lord and said, how are people going to buy and sell it? There, There's no people left. <laughs> We're destroyed. We have been scattered. We are ruined. How can this happen? And look what the Lord said in verse 27. This is in chapter, what chapter I'm in? 32, verse 27. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? That's a good verse to, to remember. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action. So they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. If anybody ever pulls out Deuteronomy to you and reads you all the blessings and all the curses, we kind of read those together one day. And says, you know, look what happened to them. They got all the curses. What's the point of following the Lord? This is the verse to come back to. Because after all the sorry history of the Israelites, God said, yes, I absolutely did all those curses. They're everyone going to happen. But you know what? I'm also going to, after that, give them every one of the blessings anyway. It is his purpose to bless us. 
And that's what the pattern you see in the Bible over and over. Doesn't matter that Adam sinned. I mean, it matters to us. But in the end, what's going to happen? God's going to bless us. Doesn't matter the Israelites went haywire. Doesn't matter they didn't recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. It doesn't matter that we're going to hell in a handbasket. You know? What matters is God loves us. And he is going to bless us. And he did send Jesus. And we have the Holy Spirit as the down payment on that blessing. Proof in hand that it will happen. Once more, fields will be bought in this land, which you say, it is a desolate waste. Fields will be bought for silver. Deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin. Because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. This whole time that Jeremiah spent in that courtyard of the guard was the most precious time of his whole career as a prophet. Because it was during this time that the Lord just showered comfort on Jeremiah. He just showered him with promises of blessing for the people. That the Lord would make everything right. If you, in fact, it's so pronounced that the chapters um, 30, 31, and 33 in Jeremiah are called the book of consolation within Jeremiah. I'm going to read you just a few excerpts. And the reason I'm spending time here is because none of these have happened yet. Yes, they did come out of captivity after 70 years, but they never were self-governing again. They never turned back to the Lord with a whole heart in the, in, in the sense that they stayed that way. I mean, there were little pockets of times of, of turning back to the Lord, but never wholeheartedly. They never had one heart for the Lord. Still don't. And, and these prophecies I'm going to read to you are in the future. They're going to happen. And because we've been grafted into the family of Israel by Christ, because we are part of them now, these blessings are ours too. Chapter 33, verse 7. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city, Jerusalem, will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all the nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it, and they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. Well, obviously, this is going to happen when Christ comes during that thousand-year reign. Uh, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. That righteous branch is a phrase the Jews take to mean Messiah. So you could read this as saying, In those days and at that time, I will make a Messiah sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, the days of the Messiah, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. 
And this is the name it will be called by. The Lord is our righteousness. That will be the name of Jerusalem. For this is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor will the priests, who are Levites, ever fail to have a man stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and present sacrifices. Remember we talked about Ezekiel's temple in some of our other classes? And that temple is a temple that will exist in the thousand year reign that temple actually has priests in it doing sacrifices and this is where the lord explains what that's about it's not they're not atoning for sin that's been done by jesus these are burnt offerings to the lord is what these are these are just offerings to god verse 20 if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night no longer come at their appointed times then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken, and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. I will make the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Uh, chapter 30, I'm going to skip around here a little bit. Chapter 30, verse 18. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tent and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. These kinds, this is one of many prophecies like this. And it's why the Jews did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah because he was not military. They expected somebody who was going to come become king, and rebuild the palace, which obviously hasn't happened. And therefore, Jesus cannot be the Messiah, according to them. All right, because they say, how can he be the Messiah if he didn't fulfill these prophecies? And that's because they're not looking forward to the thousand-year reign. Okay, I think if they had accepted him as Messiah in the way Lord, the Lord delivered him, this would have already happened. You know, I think history would be very different. All of these prophecies would have already been fulfilled if the Jews had accepted Jesus at that time. But thankfully for our benefit, they didn't. And we got to slip right in there and become part of the promise. You know, I figure God would have figured a way out anyway. But but um, it's it's kind of neat. And and then the Lord goes on in 31.1 to say, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. They will be my people. And in uh, verses 7 through 9 of Jeremiah third, uh, 31, he talks about how he's going to gather the Jews from all over the world and bring them back. Then he says something kind of strange. In verse 9, he says, they will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. That made me pause for a minute. Ephraim, where did that come from? What does that mean? You know, we haven't been talking about Ephraim lately. What is that? Well, in the end of chapter 30, which is part of that book of Consolation, it says, in the end days, you will understand these things. So, well, we're in the end days. So I want to understand it. So <laughs> I went that last bit about Ephraim. Well, if you remember who Ephraim was, Ephraim was one of Jacob's, Jacob, Joseph's in Egypt, Joseph's two sons. He had two sons in Egypt and their mother wasn't even Jewish. Did you know that? She was like the daughter of the high priest 
of the priest of Ra, the sun god. Okay, so she was an idol worshiper, presumably. Certainly her daddy was. She and Joseph got married, had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim was the younger son, not the older son. When Joseph brought his dad, Jacob, into Egypt to live during that famine, you remember that Jacob's other name was Israel. Okay. Israel was dying, and he was blessing all his 12 sons who were going to become the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes. And and Jacob said, uh, Joseph, bring me your two boys too, who were his grandsons. And Jacob said, I'm going to bless them as if they were my sons, thereby making 14, which we talked about. Okay. And when he blessed those two extra boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, he intentionally blessed Ephraim as the oldest and Manasseh as the second son, switching their birth order on purpose. Joseph said, no, 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 dad. And, and, and Israel said, no, I'm doing this the way the Lord wants it done. And so the Lord can take the son, not even a legitimate son, you know, the son of an idol worshiper, the second son of an idol worshiper, and give him the birthright of the firstborn. Thank God for that. That foreshadowed what he did for us. And it's no coincidence then that in Israel, when the North, remember how they split between the Northern and the Southern kingdoms? They had the Civil War. And the Northern Kingdom of Israel got taken into captivity by the Assyrians first, a hundred years before the Southern Kingdom, before what we're reading about. Well, as they got taken into captivity, they kind of got chewed off from the top to the bottom. The last tribe to be taken was. Ephraim. So near the end of the kingdom of Israel, the word, the name Ephraim became synonymous with Israel. Okay. So now the Lord says, set up road signs, put up guideposts. We're in Jeremiah 31 verse 21 and 22. So we've, we've seen what the Lord can do for us. And and this last this is the last verse we're going to talk about and then we'll be done. This verse says the Lord says set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road you take. Return, O virgin Israel, return to your towns. How long will you wander, O unfaithful daughter? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. A woman will surround a man. I'm like, "What?" <laughs> For one thing, he said, virgin Israel. This is after he's just been calling him a harlot, a whore, a prostitute, because they kept running after idols. And the Lord saw the, his relationship with Israel as a marriage covenant. And when they went off after those idols, it was they were being unfaithful. He called them all kinds of things and has for years. And here, now that they've gone off into captivity, he says, O virgin Israel, come back. The Lord just made them pure. He, he, he saw them as pure. This is the second time tonight that we've read about that. If the Lord can do that, 
for the nation of Israel after hundreds of years of sin? He can do that for me. He can do that for you. I know that I have counseled with young women who have told me I am so impure that no one will ever want me. And yet these are women that the Lord loves and can make as a virgin. The Lord can do this because it's a state of heart and it's a state of grace. It's a gift. And so no matter how damaged you are, the Lord can make you a virgin in every meaning of that word. The next thing I noticed in that same verse was that really weird ending where the Lord will create a new thing on earth. A woman will surround a man. I could not figure out what in the world that meant. I looked at old commentaries from my grandpa's library. I looked at new commentaries. I went online. I looked everywhere. I couldn't find. You wouldn't believe what people came up with to explain that verse. Some people thought it meant Mount Zion would surround the Jews who were regathered to it. Uh, that was not very satisfying to me. Some thought it was, several thought it was a reference to the Virgin Mary carrying Jesus. Which to me, you know, she did do that, but it was like so out of context with the whole rest of the verse and what was before and after it, that didn't make any sense to me. One scholar actually suggested that the verse be left out altogether. That is when the auditor in me kicked in. I said, a red flag. I remember that one time when I was still a practicing CPA, I was hired by a hospital to fix their accounts receivable system because nobody in their whole accounting department had ever been able to reconcile accounts receivable. Well, for those of you who don't speak tech accounting, accounts receivable is how much money people owe them. It's the list of how much money people owe them. They could not figure it out. So they hired me, and, they, and, I, and I sat down with the accounting department, and I said, okay, bring me every single report that comes out of that accounting system. Because the problem, as they described it, was this system creates so many reports, we just can't tell, make heads or tails out of them. We can't tell what goes with what or how to fit them together. So I said, bring me every report. And they brought me all the reports, and they brought me all their attempts at reconciling it. And, and, and at the end, I said, well, is, is that all? And they said, yep, that's every report we've got. And I said, well, what about that stack in the corner over there? You haven't given me anything off of that stack. And they said, oh, oh, you know what? That, that report just, it just comes out of the system and nobody knows why. And so we just kind of stack it in the corner. <laughs> well, you can imagine that report held the key to the whole thing. So as soon as I read that this scholar thought they ought to just throw that verse out, I thought, we have the cornerstone verse here. This is significant. So I had exhausted all of my other sources, and so I just went on the internet to see if I could find anybody who had figured out what this verse meant. And I found, I knew it right when I found it. The person that I think got it right is John F. Hobbins. He's an author, a pastor, 
a linguistic expert with advanced degrees in Hebrew, which is the language this is written in. And he discussed this verse on his blog. His blog is called Ancient Hebrew Poetry. Okay, the, the verse is, How long will you wander, O unfaithful daughter? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. A woman will surround a man. Or in some translations it says a woman will press a man. And here's his blog. According to the first half of the verse, the story of Jeremiah's generation and its relationship with God is one of waywardness. Like a headstrong teenage daughter, I have one, I know, he says. Israel runs hot one day and cold the next, vis-a-vis God. The second half of the verse transforms the how long of the first half into a promise that the waywardness will come to an end. It is anticipated that the Lord has brought about a new situation in which the woman will press the man. The woman will encircle and surround. The verb used is a strong one and can be used in a negative sense as when the waters pressed around Jonah and nearly drowned him. It's that same word. The text refers to this as a, quote, new thing on earth. A role reversal is described. So this amazing prophecy of Jeremiah imagines the reversal of the usual situation in which God must beg his people for attention and they do not respond. Now his people will take the initiative. Now they will court him. They will circle around him fixedly rather than wander hither and thither. Jeremiah 31.22 is the basis for the practice of the bride circling the groom seven times at a Jewish wedding. And that just blew me away because at a Jewish wedding, when the wedding party arrives at the canopy, the bride and her family circle around the groom seven times. And that represents the bonds of marriage. And it, you know, it's kind of reminiscent of creation. And, you know, there's a lot of sevens in the Bible. But to a Jew, one of the most, to to an Orthodox Jew, one of the most significant sevens has to do with the Teflon. And that is not a cook pot. All right. I'm probably even saying it wrong. But if you've ever seen the pictures of Orthodox Jews at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, or maybe if you've been to New York, you may have seen, seen this, but the men will, will wear a small black box bound to their forehead. And they'll wear a small black box bound to their forearm, okay? And that, that box on their arm has a strap that is wrapped around the arm seven times. And in that box are several scriptures that are significant. One of the scriptures is Exodus 13, 1 through 16, that tells the Jews to dedicate their firstborn to God of man and animal. And the last, and they're supposed to do that so they remember the miracles that the Lord did when he brought them out of Egypt, remember? And the, and the whole, the last plague, the tenth plague being the plague of the fourthborn, firstborn. And the very end of that passage of scripture says, it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Also in that box is the Shema which you would recognize, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. 
bind them on your foreheads. Okay. And the last scripture that's in this little box is Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, which are, is the command to us as well. Then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut the heavens, so it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord God is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and in your minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses, which is why they have the little scroll, Jewish people on the, on the door frame of the house. Okay. Um, and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. These are the scriptures the Jews bind to their arm and wrap with a strap seven times. Just as a man binds himself in this way to, in love to God, never to be forgotten. So the bride binds herself to her husband in the marriage ceremony by walking around him seven times. And how utterly beautiful and utterly right is this verse in Jeremiah that a new thing will happen on the earth and Israel will bind herself to God. The message translation puts it exquisitely. It translates this verse as, God will create a new thing in this land. A transformed woman will embrace the transforming God. Stop there.